Hey, it's your host Omar, and welcome to the Curiosity Project. Today you are joining a conversation I had with Jamil Lalani. He is the founder and owner of Lalani & Co, a traditional fine tea merchant, sourcing the finest, limited production, single batch teas. For those of you who are readers of the blog, you will know I am a huge fan of their teas. We discussed the challenges and upsides of life as an entrepreneur, positive applications of capitalism, and how the tea industry works. Finally, I would like to thank Pavilion Club Knightsbridge for hosting our conversation. Thank you for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Hi, Jamil. How are you doing? Omar, nice to see you. Nice to see you too. Nice to see you too. What is going on with the fucking rail system in London right now? It's an absolute joke. I think infrastructure everywhere is under under far too much pressure. Why, why We're still you, in the hangover from lockdown, aren't we? Why do you feel as though that infrastructure seems to have... Well, obviously, we've got the rail strikes that's going on, and that seems to position the trains in the wrong way. Um but I don't, I don't know, it just seems as though in the last two or three weeks it's been an absolute nightmare to get around anywhere in London, whether you're driving or, you know, public transport or trains or anything. Oh, gosh, I mean, it's not encouraging. I think we're also in a bit of a hangover phase mm. after the last few years of chaos. Do you I, think so? I think strain, I see strain in people. Mm. I see strain in people where there's just so much fatigue from the last few years of, of swinging one way and the other and not knowing what's coming next. We're not built for this. No. We need a certain amount of stability. I think people are starting to crumble a little bit. And what do you mean by stability? In what ways do you mean stability? That sounds like an economic and political question. <laughs> <laughs> Let me answer that from a, bit, from a business perspective. Yeah. As a business owner, what you need is stability against which you can plan for the future predictability okay. against which you can plan for the future a lot of people think entrepreneurs are risk takers and there's no denying that yes we do take risk but we are primarily risk destroyers mm. in the sense that an entrepreneur will look at a, a problem and think i can overcome that problem okay but there are all these risks involved and a good entrepreneur will look at those risks one by one and eliminate them so that solving the problem, which does involve risk, takes as little risk as possible. And then you look at the remaining risks and you say, can I overcome those with the skills and tools at my disposal? And if the answer is yes, then you, you go for it. So you know, the, a lot of the tools in business and the approach to business is about taking out the risk mm. so that you have reliability, predictability, stability. That might mean hedging your currency, for example. Sure. That might mean forward contracting, all sorts of things. Bringing the right people onto your team that have done this before. And the times that we're going in now, the times that we're in now, involve fluctuations all over the place that you cannot effectively predict or plan for. And that's what I mean by stability. Mm. The fluctuations are so varied that you can't predict them and you don't even have the tools at your disposal to um to to limit them yeah yeah no it's interesting because uh you're, you're totally right i mean we're experiencing volatility in in areas of which we have historically never experienced this degree of volatility uh we don't know what tomorrow is going to look like we don't know what next week is going to look like i mean only until a couple of months ago we didn't even know who was running our country <laughs> you know so this is this is not a good way to go um but I, I, I do like the approach that you just said about kind of entrepreneurial um, uh, uh, entrepreneurs. Um, I think many people, you're totally right, they think that they're risk takers and that, you know, um, uh, what's that? Um, uh, fortune favors the bold, I think is the, yes. is, is the phrase. Is the phrase. Uh, I, I think that's just a bit, you know, I think that's taken out of context. Mm. Um, you're totally right. I mean, successful entrepreneurs are all about risk, uh, risk mitigation. Mm. Uh, it's about looking at uh, a problem and finding out the, the, the most efficient and, ef and, and effective way of solving that, 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 that problem uh, without putting too much at risk. Mm. Um, I think, but unfortunately, the stories that get the biggest coverage are the ones that risk everything and get massive payoffs at the end. Whether it's Elon Musk, I mean, this is the story that's kind of 
touted quite a lot. Now I have some interesting views about Elon Musk, but we won't go in that today. Um, but, you know, this is a guy that risked everything he had on something that he believes only had a something like a 20% um, uh, possibility of success. Um, that's a very bad bet as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> well, there's no denying that the reward should always reflect the risk because that's what makes it effective. So if a very big risk has to be taken, then of course the re reward must be proportionate to the risk. Yeah. But in an ideal scenario, you would not take a risk for the sake of taking the risk. It's yeah. the, it's the, um, the, uh, the line that was told to us after the financial crisis was that certain individuals were taking on enormous risk, therefore they should be given oh, enormous yeah. reward. But the risk was unnecessary. Mm. They took on risk which wasn't necessary and therefore it shouldn't have been taken in the first place. The entrepreneur has a different mindset. It's how do I solve the problem and remove as much risk as possible in the process, not how can I take on as much risk as possible so that I'm rewarded as much as possible. That just leads to more instability, as we've it seen. It does. It does. It does. You're totally right. Um, uh, but yeah, I, 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 I like that, though. I think so many of these kind of self-help uh, podcasts and these ones that are led and uh, the ones that push entrepreneurship quite hard are always like, oh, take risks, take this, take that. And yes, t taking a certain amount of palatable risk for the amount of capital or attention you have to spare for that particular project is important. You know, as you say, it's relative. The amount of risk that you take should be reflective of the potential reward. But there's a point of which where I think that that ratio uh, becomes impossible. Uh, for example, if, if someone came to me and said, risk everything that you have on something that would only be uh, on, on the success rate of something uh, working out would be 20 percent. I'd say, whoa. Yeah. No, thank you. You know, that's not for me. There's a certain point where the risk reward ratio becomes just destructive or the level of risk itself becomes destructive in an absolute in an absolute yeah. measure. I mean, I think that, you know, it then ventures into the world of is this entrepreneurship or is this a gamble? Mm. You know, what's the, what's the difference? And I think... Uh, well, that, that's a philosophical question, isn't it? Yeah. At what stage are you gambling? And at what stage are you being an entrepreneur or just making a business decision? I've had this discussion, actually, with, with a few people. And I find it's a very blurry line because even if you do act as a sensible entrepreneur and business owner, your success rate is very, very small still. Yeah. I mean, let's say you open a restaurant, for example. The restaurant industry is notorious for high risk and high rates of failure. Yeah. You might argue that a gamble with a three to one ratio on the, you know, the spin of a wheel is actually a safer bet than opening a restaurant, for example, because the failure rate is so high. So how do you, how do you equate for that in the discussion of gambling versus entrepreneuring? Yeah, I think, um, uh, you know, I was actually asked this question a few days ago about um, uh, someone was asking me, have you ever gambled in a casino and stuff? And I kind of made a flippant joke and I said, no, I did all of my gambling on the stock market. <laughs> um, but I, I think the primary difference between gambling and uh, entrepreneurship or investing um, is, is really just one thing. Uh, you're, you're either making a... So in my opinion, I think if you have the ability to be able to count cards, you're no longer gambling. You're now making statistical decisions on whether or not you can win or lose. That's where I think the difference mm -hmm. between gambling and investment or entrepreneurship comes in, is you're able to discern the, the percentage of whether or not you're going to win, um, and you're able to, to, to make a, a difference in your actions during that journey in uh, altering that percentage. Yes. So, for okay. example, if, if you start out, uh, the, 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 uh, let's say you open up the restaurant, you start out with let's say twenty percent uh, that it's gonna it's gonna work out, but then your your marketing strategy, the people that you have, could alter that. You know, it could either go up or go down. Yes. So you have a you you have a, an actual impact, a physical impact on on the on the potential success of your of, of your project. I think that's where the big difference. Gambling, you're just you're putting it down to lady luck. You know, I think that that's just me though. That's what I think. So I th I think that's a good definition. In gambling, you don't have an active role in the outcome. That doesn't mean you can't get exceptional odds, though. True. And you might be a fool if you, had a, if you were given exceptional odds in a gamble. You might be a fool not to take it. If someone said risk a pound and you might get 10,000 on the flip of a coin. Bitcoin. 
that's not going to that one. But if somebody offered you odds like that, you'd be a you'd be a fool not to take a, a yeah. you know a thousand to one payout on a fifty fifty. Yeah. Um, entrepreneuring would be much more risk than that, but you would still be you would still be gambling. There's an interesting um, um, an interesting analogy. Let's say you, you did you do chemistry, A level chemistry? I, no, no, I did GCSE. GCSE. Did, yeah. do, do we do energy change reactions in, in those? No, not in GCSE. So there's a in A level chemistry you do this, these enthalpy change reactions, they, they, and the the diagram for that is that. You've got something existing at a high energy state. Okay. And the natural tendency of everything is to move to a low energy state. Mm. That's just what things want to do. Just like when you push a ball, it rolls off a table, it's going to a low energy state. But in order to get from the high energy state to the low energy state requires an activation energy to push it over that. Right. I view entrepreneuring as we're in a state of high energy and there's a better state to get to. Right, there's a lower energy state, an easier state to get to, something that's better for everybody. But there's an activation energy that you have to push over. Mm. And in order to get over that, you need the entrepreneur and their team and the capital. And the aim of the entrepreneur is to bring down that activation energy as much as possible, to make it an easier transition by bringing on the right partners, the right team, the right capital, having the right skills themselves, having a good work ethic, um, forward contracting the operation to bring down the risk where that's possible, other such tools like this. And then you look at that remaining activation energy and you push over that. So the bet you're taking is on you and your team and your resources, not on chance itself. Sure, sure. No, that makes a lot of sense. And I wonder, Jamil, as you were kind of uh, progressing in your, in your education and your own professional career, what was it about entrepreneurship that kind of enticed you why why did you decide to go down that road what what's the story there hmm. um my mother and father both run their own businesses so to a certain extent when you see that that's what you know hmm. so that that i suppose is the the foundational uh, the foundational inspiration in the sense of the direction um why did i want to start my own do you know i've never actually considered that question really? i've never considered why i chose to start my own as opposed to working for somebody else. While you think about that, do you mind if I ask you a question? So mm. there was a clip I saw. Do you know Mark Cuban? Yes, of course. Um, he, he said something uh, on Shark Tank, mm -hmm. I think, um, uh, a few weeks ago, where he said, uh, I would rather uh, work 18 hours a day to earn $50,000 a year in my own company as opposed to earning 750000 a year working 9 to 5 for someone else. <laughs> Uh, do you is is that a mindset that you share? Is it something that you've always wanted to have to be you know king of your own castle, as mm. it were? Sail your own ship, yeah. Master of your own destiny, yeah. Uh, that's an interesting quote, and of course these quotes are given in isolation, yeah. Because you could in the real world, it's not a closed system. You could work two years for somebody else for that money and then start your own, and you'd yeah. be better off. But taking that in isolation. Um, it, re it does remind me of something I say to people who want to start out in business. It's is that you trade working for someone else for a guaranteed salary, which is usually rather good, mm. to working twice as hard for yourself for half as much money. Yeah. Um, and you have to be prepared for that. Mm. You have to be prepared for that sacrifice. And at the end of it, you might end up with nothing. Who would so do why, this? So this is what... Th th this who would do this, Omar? Who would... What madman would do this? What madman? What madman would take all his savings or her savings and put them up and then go to their friends and family and ask for further loans yep. or go to a bank and put either their house up or a personal guarantee, which means the bank will come after you if you don't if pay you them don't back. Pay. Even yep. if the company fails, the bank will come after you. And then give up working, let's say, nine till six or nine till seven for mm. a decent salary for working seven in the morning till midnight yep. for no salary for a couple of years. And then by the time you do earn something, you've created a job for someone else to pay them. And then you have to go back to earning your own salary from scratch if you're doing entrepreneuring as yep. a small business owner. Um, who would do that? Who would do that? Who would do that? Now, you've seen your parents kind of go through this, right? Yes. Um, they ran their own business. I'm sure you saw them bust their ass working day and night dealing with, you know, customers and clients and all this sort of stuff. Um, so you had primary evidence to see what it's like running your own shop, doing your own thing. Um, what on earth came over you? Why did you decide, this is what I want to do? I want to put myself through this torture. 
you're asking the same question to which I didn't have an answer 10 minutes ago. Yeah. In the hope that I have an answer now. Yeah. Uh, that's bold. <laughs> <laughs> Why did I do it? I don't think I could pin it down to one thing. Mm. I suppose it's what I know. I also think, to a certain extent, it's wanting to make a difference. Wanting to do something that's useful. Mm. Wanting to change things and make a mark. I don't know. How many entrepreneurs have you asked that question to? Every entrepreneur. Give me some answers that they are given. So I can tell you the most recent Do one they struggle with it like I struggle with it? Or do they have an sometimes, answer? Okay. Sometimes. Um, but I think what happens is that there always seems to be an element of emotional connection. Mm-hmm. Um, I, th- I think one of, one of the things that I'm always very interested in knowing is when you started it. So how old were you when you started Alani & Co? 23. 23 years mm-hmm. old. And putting yourself back in the shoes of that 23-year-old, what was going through your mind at the time when you decided, I'm going to start this tea company, I'm going to start sourcing amazing teas all around the world, and I'm going to make a difference, and I'm going to say fuck you to the, to the tea industry? You know, what was going through, how, you know, tell me about some of the ideas at the time and, and, and how do you feel about it now? So my, my, that's a good one, Emma, you jogged my memory. So my aim was not to, was not to disrupt. That's the first thing. It wasn't, okay. No, and I, I take exception somewhat to the overuse of the word disruption. Right. Because again, we, in, in business, we're not really, we don't really want disruption in life. It causes instability. Sure. What we like is progression. And the way I see the tea market... It's a very fucking mature way of thinking of it at 23, I have to say. Thank you. I'll, uh, thank you. Very kind. Yeah, because um, I was a crazy fuck. You know, I was, you know, I was disruption. Although I've, I've, I've told you stories. Really? About my when, when you were 23? Yeah, about my anarchistic, which was three years ago. Three years ago. My- <laughs> I wasn't going to say it on air, but... Uh. My, my anarchistic tendencies... <laughs> About sticking it to the man, but anyway, very. Uh, uh, I'm very impressed. That's amazing. Uh, the um, <laughs> where was I? Um, uh, you no, were yeah, saying about progression. progression. I, the way I view the tea market is, we're not here to upset the apple cart. We're here to put the next layer on top, mm. or to bring back a layer that was there in the distant past, which needs to be put back for the benefit of consumer and producer. Every market you have has a hierarchy. You start, the consumer starts at the entry level. And then if it takes their interest, they move upwards to something new. And they move upwards to something new. And they will stop on the ladder wherever they feel comfortable according to their interest and budget. So, you know, a, a, a watch enthusiast might have started as a kid when their parents brought them a little digital... A or something, yeah, yeah. something like that. And then that might have just taken their interest. Maybe they took it apart or something. And then, mm. and then you uptrade and you uptrade and you uptrade until the point where you become a passionate aficionado of something. And I think you, with the, the mind that you have, know this journey and have done it in various things from sound recording equipment to cigars sure. to, you know, sure. to, to coffee to tea now. Um, and, and so the market needs these different layers and the connoisseur or enthusiast needs layers added on top to mm. keep moving up to pique their interest. And so w- what I view us doing is not upsetting the apple cart. It's, I'm really glad we have all the brands at their different quality and price points. Because for those who want to experience something that very few people experience, for those who want to get into flavor and provenance and terroir and, and experience the the intricacies and complexities and, and the great enjoyment of flavor of tea at its best, that's what we're here to do. Mm. Not to upset or disrupt, but to build. Do you feel as though that um, the, the key nature of, of the way of which that... Um, so I, I, I'll tell you why, why I'm going to ask this question first and foremost, because I, I feel as though that the, what, what, one of the basic things about this particular product is in itself disruption. Um, one of the things that I always tend to tell people whenever I mention your tea is you haven't tried tea until you've tried Jamil's tea. Um, and for me, I think that that in itself is disruptive 
because the way that people talk about your tea is very much like, well, everyone else is selling you a fake dream and this is the real stuff. So is, is that something that you've encountered before? Do you feel as though that regardless of whether or not you want it to be disruptive, it's just kind of innately happened? I think that disruption is only what's going on in the head of a particular kind of consumer. And I mean that as a compliment. Sure. So I, I don't think... I, I, for, for those people who have a connoisseur mindset, you can show them something that is the top of its field and they will instantly recognize it because the, the recognition and understanding of quality is a transferable skill. Sure. If somebody showed you, you know, a, a great suit, you would get it straight away because you understand great cigars, great watches, great tea, great coffee, and so on. So for that kind of customer who readily appreciates quality, it will disrupt their view of what the product can be. Mm. But in terms of the market, I, I don't think, I don't think that a, you know, a, a magnificent car disrupts the market for an everyday car. Sure. I mean, but that's obviously a different kind of thing, right? You know, uh, a magnificent car would be, you know, two or three hundred thousand pounds. But the, the, this, this example is far more accessible. Well, that's an interesting point, isn't it? Because tea is a very affordable luxury. Probably one of the most affordable luxuries. Probably is. In fact, I would say, it, it, yes, it almost certainly is one of the most affordable luxuries. I mean, we, we've done this calculation where uh, there are some teas that we would sell at two to three thousand pounds a kilo. Mm, holy shit. Which, which... Sounds expensive, yeah. Um, but you know, for a hundred grams, that works out. This is premium end. Yep. This is really premium end. So please, for those listening, don't be scared that that's the price point because because <laughs> uh, um, it starts a lot a lot more affordable than that. I'm going right in at the deep end okay. just to show the price comparison. Sure. A tea that is worth six thousand pounds a kilo, okay, is the equivalent when you infuse it into liquid mm. of spending ninety five pounds on a bottle of wine, mm. which now sounds quite ordinary. Exactly. Yeah. And it, I mean, of course, £95 is far beyond most people's price point, but it's nothing compared to the equivalent in whiskey, wine, cigars, cars, and so on. Um, and, and just to bring it slightly back down to earth, mm. the, the most beautiful first flush Darjeelings, these are the region of Darjeeling's most premium productions. Milliliter for milliliter, it's like spending £4.50 on a bottle of wine. Now, you think this is the pinnacle of craft of the Indian tea industry, and someone can drink it for the same price as £4.50 for 750 mils. There is no, it's ex- a no, there's no, there's no comparison. It's a no-brainer. So yeah. tea is, if, if, um, if people like really good quality stuff and want to get a passion for something, tea is one of the most affordable, affordable um, luxuries that there is, affordable passions that there is. And... The really nice thing about it is the difference that it makes to the producer. Mm. Because the regions that we're dealing with have history and heritage and wonderful soil and great people who are working really hard. But until recently, the market has, well, the market mostly comes and says, well, we need to at this price. Mm. And so the quality that they can produce is somewhat limited because they're limited by the price that the market is prepared to pay. Whereas when we go along and we say, okay, show us the best you can do, or let's share some skills that we learned from a different region and make this even better, or let's experiment and make it better. And then they do. And then we can say, okay, what's the, you know, what's the price we need to pay for this? And when we can do that, then we can say, okay, you make this better product. Mm. We can then take it from you and say, thank you. What a great product. And then we can pay you the price that you really need to make this better product. And then we'll take it to a consumer as a luxury that is very affordable so they can afford it. And then they drink it and they get a better quality tea, Mm. which has no calories and is full of polyphenols and other nice stuff. Everybody wins. And so that same kilo of tea that would have been shredded or mistreated and sold as a mid-market or low-market product, you can recraft it by putting in the effort and making a beautiful product and that, that to me is the, I'm going to use a slightly dirty word here, I'm going to say capitalism. It's okay. That, that's the, the acceptable face of capitalism is that, where you go to somebody and you say, what can you do? What's the work? What's the work of your hands? Yeah. And can you do it even more beautifully? 
And can we pay you a price that you need for that? Mm. And then can we say, thank you, what a great job? Because in the end, that's what motivates people, right? You, why do people go to work every day? It's because you, you feel you're doing a good job. Somebody mm. says, you did a great job. You really helped me for the work that you've done. And so we can do that, pay a, um, an income that, that is uh, proportionate and, and befitting, and then bring that great, great product to a consumer like you who drinks it and goes, wow, you know, you've messed me up properly now. Yeah. <laughs> this is all I can drink. No, this is, this, this is the interesting thing. And I mean, you know, the, the story that you're kind of telling about supporting the producers and, the, and the, the farmers that are involved and all this sort of stuff and just making... And it, you're right. I mean, in terms of capitalism, is there a more fulfilling cycle, you know, in terms of purchasing a product that benefits you extraordinarily and also benefits the producer and the farmer and, and uh, the, the people in the middle of the, of the supply chain like yourself, mm. the people who are connecting a producer and consumer? Um, you know, I definitely understand that. And I, I, for me, I think, you know, some of these farmers who are doing very small batch tea production, I mean, these people are artisans. These people are artists. Yes, they are. You Artist know, is the word. Yeah. You know, they, 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 they do not fuck about. They put, you know, unbelievable effort into what it is that they're doing. And they take a great deal of pride in the work that they do. And for the amount that they get paid, you know, uh, the majority of what they have is the pride for the work that they do. You know, that's yes. what these guys value. They, they, they don't value the extra money that comes in. I'm sure, I'm sure that their family... Well, I, I yeah. think um, in, in certain regions, they certainly do. I can imagine. Mm. I can imagine. But I think primarily for some of these people, and this is just some of the experience I have in dealing with, with other artists in terms of painters and stuff like mm -hmm. that, you know, the, the extra money comes in and it's great, you know, it increased their quality of living, their standard of living... Uh, you know, their family are very appreciative and all this sort of stuff. But really what the artist is is concerned about is he's concerned. So I remember going to, and I know, I know you're, a, you're a fan of, of art as well. Um, I remember going to a, an exhibition for a new artist. And this particular artist was refusing to sell piece of art to people who he or she did not believe would appreciate the art. Right. Um, so that's really why it is. It's not about raking in the money. It's about making sure that the home of which their piece of art that they have. The way that I describe artists is these are people in any project that they work in, they are cutting off a piece of themselves and putting it in the thing that they're producing. And they become very, very protective and very... Um, they have an element of kind of ownership over what it is that they have. And for them, it's important. I think this is why these producers are so happy to deal with yourself, Jamil, because you are a champion of these people. You're there. As you say, you go to them. Listen, what can we do to make this work? How, what can we do to make you make your life a bit easier? Um, I think a lot of people are there to squeeze these people. You're not doing that. We're definitely not there to squeeze. That's for sure. Um, <clears throat> I think in, in the case of an artist, I would agree with you. Um, in the case of the tea industry, it is slightly different because they really do desperately need the extra income. Really? The market has been somewhat squeezed mm. over the last 50 to 70 years um, for various reasons. And the extra, they need the sales. They need the sales, they need the income. Mm. And the, the, when you buy a premium tea, you're taking a kilo of tea and instead of it feeding, you know, instead of providing food, shelter and so on for someone for a certain amount of time, you're multiplying that enormously. Mm. And that is much needed. That is much needed. So part of the ethics of it, and, and now to finish off that question that, I, that you jogged my memory on, I, um, I have... Now let me think about how I'm going to phrase this. I've always been fascinated by the impact that good business can do. Mm. And I'm, go I'm, I'm going to say capitalism again. It, it's, it's funny that, you know, you never, never shied away from saying it, but in, it seems that there's a push against this idea of, of capitalism. Mm. But it's been maligned. Because it, it is, as its essence is, an honest day's pay for an honest day's work yep. that allows you to provide for yourself, your family, and put something away for retirement. And an honest return on honest capital and invest it. 
and capital being the physical crystallization of labor that has been done by people in the past. So when you're pushing money around, you're pushing people's hours, worked hours around, and that has to be treated with a lot of respect. Um, and when, it, when it's done properly, it's a, it's a very honorable system when it's done without a ton of greed attached to it. And I've been fascinated by this idea of how business transforms people's lives mm. when done with people in mind. I remember as a, as a kid watching Schindler's List, which mm. magnificent film from, from, a, from an artistic perspective, um, incredibly important film from a sociopolitical perspective and a fascinating film from a commercial perspective because you've, you've got someone that essentially at the beginning uses his business to do terrible things mm. and in the end uses it to do good things um, and try to undo the terrible damage he's done to, to start with and, and, and manages to do that to very good ends. And I, I wondered what would be the impact if you just did that to start with, if you just did the right thing to start with in your business? What, what good could you do? And how much could you, how much could you help people through the process of doing good ethical business with them? And in the process, try to do as little damage as possible. Mm. And I suppose that, that's what attracts me to business. It's the power of it to make change in people's lives. It's interesting. I mean, the, the example that you gave about Schindler's List um, is, is actually one that I haven't heard before, and, but it makes perfect sense. And I mean, is there any, any scene in, in, in cinematic history that's more powerful than the final scene in Schindler's List? Oh, wow. When Liam Neeson is, you know, being sent off uh, by his workers and everything he's pointing at, he says, this could have been five people. This is 10 people. This is seven people. You that, know, Omar, who hasn't who hasn't shed a tear at that yeah. scene, right? Yes, I could have got more. Yeah, I could have got more. But there's 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 generations around him that because I think the final scene is the next generation or the two or three generations yes. of all the Jews that were saved because of him, because of him going to his grave. Um, and there's all these, I think, uh, you know, a hundred and something people around him that were supported by his business. Yeah, I think it was about, a, it was over a thousand, I think. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. I forget the number exactly. But whatever it was, it was monumental and it was fed by this, by, by his ability to be able to create a business, to earn money, but to funnel that money into a, into, into a honorable into an honourable outcome. In the end, yes. I mean, that money profited from slave labour to start with. That's right. right. So he did it wrong to start with and then had to backtrack and do it completely, not even right, but at a loss, right? Yeah, he, that's he right. He burnt all his capital on doing what he did to start with. But even that he wasn't happy with. Yes, exactly. Well, so, the, there are, so the first thing to mention is that the thought that I, that I dwell on is if you don't do it wrong to start with, and he did it very wrong to start yeah. with. You can you still correct it. Well, if you don't do it wrong to start with, how much better can you do? Yeah. And just instead of going one way, then swinging the other, can the business be an engine for improvement constantly? Yeah. Um, but to go back to that scene, for anyone who hasn't seen it, are we going to spoil it? Are we going to just spoil I think it? most people have seen it anyway. If you haven't seen if it, you, haven't, if you, you should be ashamed of yourself. Skip forward 10 seconds. Um, yeah, if you haven't seen it, you should be ashamed of yourself <laughs> and don't skip, you know, and, and put some that, culture in your life, for God's sake. So at the end, he's looking at the he's looking at the car, and he says, "Well, what could I have got for this? Like this would have bought me ten people." Yeah. Because he he basically bribes the Nazis to right. to let let him uh, keep his workers, and he looks at the car, and it would have been ten people, and he pulls the pin. It's like this pin is gold. Yeah. Well, and he it, gives it to uh, to Ben Kingsley. He says, "Take this. It, buy buy. Give this and make more. You know, get more people out of this." Does he say it? No, he doesn't say that. I don't think. Are you sure? No, I think he just pulls it out, and he says, "You know." what good is this pin? This pin is gold. Mm. There would have been two people, one person at least. And he breaks down saying one more person. Yeah. And that scene captures exactly what business does yeah. at its, in its businesses. You, you, you do a day's work and you produce a day's income. Mm. And, that, and that time spent in productive labor produces... Wealth. That wealth, I mean, at the moment in the UK, about roughly, give or take, you know, 10 to 15 pounds represents 
the value of a person's hour. Yeah. If you're lucky. I think well, so the living wage is now about 10, 10 plus change, isn't it? I think they just, uh, yeah, they just changed change. it. Yeah, right? yeah. They just yeah, changed yeah. it. I think you're very lucky if most people are earning anything around the £15. I think majority is 10 to 12. Uh, yes. Yes, I think that, that, that is true. So when you, when you have 10 to 12 pounds in your hand, you've actually got an hour of somebody's labor mm. crystallized into, into wealth. Yeah. And when he points at the pin of gold or the, or the car, that has been earned through somebody's labor. Mm. And what can you... So when you're handling wealth or spending money, you really have to realize that what you've got in your hands is hours and hours of labor that somebody put in before you. And when you're running a business, you're deploying those hours. You're deploying somebody's life, essentially. Yeah. I mean, if, you know, if you're, if, you're, if you're listening to this and you're, you're an investor or you're, you're an entrepreneur that's dealing in numbers you know, of hundreds and hundreds of thousands or even millions, you are pushing around and deploying the worked lifetimes of people that have gone before you, which is an extraordinary responsibility. And to misdeploy that you can misallocate a year of somebody's work labor. That's, that's a terrifying thought. And that, that's a, a slightly different angle on what, what um, Liam Neeson, as, as Oscar Schindler, talks about at the end. He's looking at these physical assets and thinking, if I hadn't deployed them there, what else could I have got for them? Yeah. And in his case, it was very much people's actual lives. It was their lives. lives. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, I mean, to, to kind of even elaborate on this idea of uh, humanizing statistics, which I think is... Is, is something I think is very important uh, right now. Um, uh, again, another movie, uh, The Big Short. Yes. Um, there was a great statistic in there, great which film. Brad Pitt uh, kind of says. He says, uh, you want to know a statistic? Here's one. I know. For every 1% yes. employment, unemployment goes up, 100,000 people die. You know. Terrifying, isn't it? And I think it's one of the reasons why I found my career in hedge funding untenable uh, near the end. Um, is primarily because you have people who are referred to as you know bearish investors and bullish investors, and there are some uh, investment uh, in, in you know hedge funds and, and mutual funds uh, that are short investing on companies and pushing their value down. You know it's great for them; they're earning in some cases tens of millions a day, mm -hmm. um, watching the stock go down, watching the value of this company deplete. Uh, but that company in itself is something that someone has worked an entire lifetime to build, uh, has probably, you know, 50, 60, 70, 100, maybe two or 300 people working for them. Hmm. And every single time that that investment uh, vehicle short sells it and drains the company and pulls that value further and further down, that company is now, uh, people are losing their jobs, people are in America, people are losing their 401ks, people are losing health insurance. Yeah, you know, uh, people are losing, you know, their savings. This is not a good thing to be involved in. No, it's a it's a very scary thing. It's a zero sum game. That's the thing. It, it is you see, the the point of capitalism, de deploying wealth, or starting a business, is to build something, not to destroy it. Yeah, and this I think is where regulation comes in. Um, I think when you talk about when you talk about business and entrepreneurialism and capitalism and such, people think you're a total, you know. You're a douche. Well, there are certain people. I think a lot of people understand it, but some people think it's a, you know you, you just want to watch the world burn, which is absolutely not true. Not true at all. And this is where regulation comes in to regulate regulate against human failing, mm. not overregulate to the point of you know to the point of handcuffing everybody, but to regulate against the things that we do yeah. that we wish we didn't do or that we might wish we didn't do later. Mm. I, I view regulation as as sober decisions made in sober times to prevent you from compromised decisions and compromised times. For example, we might, go for, we might go for tea somewhere and you might say to me, Jamil, when I'm, when I'm in that, I'm only having one piece of cake. And I'll say, okay, well, I'll hold you to that. You're only having one piece of cake. Yeah. And then when you get in there, you have one piece of cake and you say, oh, well, you know what? I'll have one more. Mm. And, and in that moment, you're making an unsober decision. Mm. And I'm there to tell you, no, Omar, for your own good, you have agreed in sober times that you will only have one piece of cake. Mm. Uh, and that's what regulation is about. It's a stop us that when things are going well, we like to get greedy or we like to get careless or we like to cut corners. And that's human nature. And that affects everybody from the individual to the two-year-old kid to the old man to the 
business owner. And regulation is there for us to make sensible decisions in sensible times so that we don't mess up when we are um, tempted. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I mean, I think recently I've I've lost a tremendous amount of faith in the world of regulation, particularly with the recent news that came out with the FTX uh, scand- scandal. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's less of a scandal now. I think it's 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 well regarded as a fraud at this point. Mm. Um, you know, this was essentially a situation where was it was it was regulated by 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 two groups. It was well, it should have been regulated by uh, the politicians in America. It should have been regulated by the SEC. And it should have been regulated by the media. I mean, these are the three uh, groups of people that should always act as a check and balance on businesses, as far as I'm concerned. Yes. Um, unfortunately, there is a way of circumventing that regulation, which is by very, very generous donations. Um, and, uh, you know, FTX was found to have been to have been uh, giving extraordinarily large donations to the Dem- uh, to the Democrats and to the Republicans. Uh, they were Both also, sides. Yes. So there were two founders. One was donating to the Republicans 50 million a year. The right. other one was donating to the Republicans 70 million a year. Um, they were also giving massive donations to uh, grant uh, programs that newspapers were running, like the Washington Post, like Vox. Uh, and in exchange, they were giving very, very favorable and still are giving very favorable um, uh, write-ups on them. Um mm. So this is an example of, of greed being such an innate aspect of human nature that it is almost impossible to provide genuine regulation against people who, who can afford to mitigate those, the, uh, uh, that regulation and to, to create their own loopholes. You know, so for me, I, I, think, I'm, I think one of the biggest uh, aspects of entrepreneurship is optimism. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have true. Yeah. I have never in my life seen anyone. The example that you gave in the beginning, who on earth would exchange a life of security to one of uncertainty? Um, you know, lots and lots of fucking work and no real guarantee of success. Mm-hmm. Who would do that? An optimist would do that. Someone who has a vision, someone who has a belief, someone who has a passion and is optimistic about their ability to be able to achieve a a, uh, a good outcome for themselves and the people around them. Absolutely. Um, I have never in my life seen a successful entrepreneur that has been a pessimist in my <laughs> ever. Um, so I think, you know, I'm, I'm generally optimistic about everything. But unfortunately, with the recent uh, things that are coming out about FTX, and I think we're now going to be experiencing uh, what, what I and I think many others like to call kind of crypto contagion. Mm-hmm. Um, where we're going to see the ripples come across and anywhere else where this has been happening, of which I think there are many areas in business where this has been happening in the US and in the UK, uh, where people have been escaping um, legitimate regulation where it should be. I mean, in the case of FTX, uh, Jamil, there are normal people who have lost serious, all of their, their, their savings yeah. because of a Ponzi scheme. This guy took their money and bought houses in the Bahamas mm-hmm. for all of his little mates to to have, uh, you know, polygamous relationships with one, with one another. This is sick shit. Well, you know, this is essentially what's happened. I haven't looked into the, the complete particulars of it. I've only been picking up the headlines. So some of what you're telling me, I know and some of what you're telling me is, is new and it's terrible. Yeah. But I mean, this is an example of a total failure because of one thing, because of greed. Mm. That's the key, though, isn't it? Yeah. Right there. Greed, and that raises the question. Well, first of all, what you described is a failure of of a failure of the political and economic system, mm. because you touched on the fact that you need the media and you need the government to be holding the, the business account. So that an effective system is where you have businesses that are doing and producing great things and solving great problems, mm. and offering these to the consumers at a fair price. But you have the government independent watching not stifling but watching and keeping in check the um the corporations and you have the media watching them both and everyone should be independent and keeping an eye on each other and so when something goes wrong someone picks up and you've got a legal system that if anybody doesn't like it they can challenge and the legal system should be affordable and and effective quick affordable and effective which is non-existent in 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 the u.s particularly Access to the law is incredibly expensive and 
the situation that you've just described is one of crony capitalism, yep. where government and corporation get together and essentially neglect the consumer, and where the media is not keeping an interested enough eye in everything that's going on, and so the, the system has failed. Um, and then that raises that you pinpoint it there. It's down to greed. And something I've been pondering lately is, we can even if we had an effective system. Regardless of what that system is, the thing that seems to bring down government after government or system after system or cause the most pain, regardless of what that is or which country it is and what the system of government is, right from the far left to the far right, it's greed. Mm. It's the desire for sex, money and power. Yeah. It's greed of, of these things that just get to people's flesh. And is it, is it really possible to regulate against the condition of the human heart? No. Are we just trying to manage a situation that is largely unwinnable? Yes, I believe so. I agree. Um, you know, it's um, one of the reasons why, uh, you know, Karl Marx always referred to the world of, you know, Marxism as a utopian society. A, a utopian is essentially no not place. possible. Yes, yeah. well, the, the Greek means no place. Yeah, right? exactly. You know, it's, it's, it's an impossible place um, because of this kind of innate thing in our blood, in our DNA. Which means, I mean, this is one of the big differences between us and kind of animals, right? Uh, that we exist beyond survival. We exist beyond, we, we have the ability to be able to want more than what we need. And this is one of the biggest problems we're having in the world right now, overconsumption. You know, people are consuming far more than what they need. For whatever reason, you know, maybe it's the supermarket's fault, maybe whatever, maybe they're doing too much buy, buy one, get two free or whatever it might be. Um, but this is the problem is people will always want more than what they actually need. I think there are certain groups in the world that have, have subverted that example. Um, maybe the Danes are a good example of that. Um, maybe some of the Scandinavian countries have been able to kind of, because this is a, 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 an interesting kind of thought is that these are cultures of which, and the Japanese culture as well, these are cultures of which have been brought up on the idea of consuming less. You know, it's about the idea of making your consumption meaningful mm -hmm. and maintaining your environment for the future generations. I mean, we recently saw this in Qatar, where after the football match was, was done, the Japanese spectators decided to get up and clean the shit oh, up. Oh, yes. They're well known for that. Yeah, because they believe in the idea of community. You know, and I think what, what many people believe to be capitalism is, is not necessarily capitalism. They believe it's about the individual. Mm -hmm. But in fact, capitalism is all about building something to benefit your community. That's what it's about. It's about benefiting the people that work for you, benefiting your consumer, about creating a product or a service that is good for them. You know, and if it's good for them, it's good for you. If people decide to use your product, if people enjoy your product and enjoy your service, it will in, in the end, it will, it will benefit yourself as well and it will keep your, your, your company growing. You can employ more people. You can give them more, uh, you know, more money, whatever it might be. So I think people are forgetting that. You know, they think it's very much, oh, this is me and I'm going to go to China and make the cheapest product possible to try and fuck those people over so I can make more money and give the people a shitty product. And we see so many businesses like that, whether it's in fashion like Sheen or whatever it is where they're, you know, massive, massive margins and, you know, no saving Passover whatsoever to the consumer. So I think we've just got so many bad examples. And in, in tech, we've got, you know, Facebook and, you know, I'm not going to say any more about that. But, <laughs> you know, we've just got so many bad examples that I don't blame people when they say capitalism is a bad word and it's a terrible thing. Um, because who do they have? This is the issue. I think, it's, you know, the thing is capitalism is not explained. I don't think we were... I don't remember at school being taught anything really about the economic system, the political system at a young age. No. Um, the economic and political system, economic theory, political theory, even practical things like opening a bank account and how to save your retirement and so on. No, we're not taught any we're of that. We're not taught any of these. These are, the, these are the things that affect us every single day in ways that are far more profound than you know, the, the, the famous example of how many wives did Henry VIII have and how did they all die? I mean, yeah. I, think, I think that's important to know. I, yeah. think it, I think it is important to know your history. But, but to teach that and neglect... And neglect, yeah. Just as a comparison, 
how we, we neglected things that are so very important. Mm. Um, I slightly lost my train of thought, but you raised a very interesting question there about... Um, uh, it was about capitalism. About what, yeah, so... The system is somewhat... And about the definition of capitalism, how we're not taught it. You mentioned that it's, you know, it's not about the individual. I think there, the balance... It's a whole other discussion, I think, the balance between individual interest and group interest. Mm. And I think there are economists and mathematicians who could do a far more eloquent, um, maybe more difficult to understand, but certainly eloquent uh, description of that, of that dance that goes on between the, the individual and the group. Mm. But certainly, if one acts with an interest of, of the group as a whole, it will benefit yourself. I'm thinking of a very famous colloquial phrase that, for reasons of good language, I will not repeat. Okay. But the idea is you, you, don't, you, don't, um, you don't mess up your own backyard, shall we say. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. You know yeah, the yeah, phrase yeah, I'm yeah. talking yeah, about. Yeah, I know, yeah. And th- this, I think, is, I think we've seen this a lot in Britain, where we have business leaders and captains of industry who have offshored mm. a lot of production at the expense of jobs in the UK. Yep. And those jobs, when they're lost, they have to be redeployed and retrained into something else. Or they will, the, those individuals will have to be supported by the state. So there is a cost. And in the end, your taxes will go up. I mean, if, in an extreme scenario, if we, if we or let's give a, a closed model, if we took 10,000 jobs away from the UK mm. and all of those were on support, and then we created those 10,000 jobs elsewhere, mm. they will be created for less money. But those 10,000 in the UK who are then unre- not redeployed and mm. are being supported, that pushes up everybody's tax burden. Yeah. So this, the simple, what you described, the simple act of just offshoring for the sake of one's own profit, in the end it impacts you. Yeah. So acting in an individual, acting in an entirely individualistic way will in the end impact that individual themselves, whether they see it or not. Yeah, I think I, I think I would agree with you. That might I, need polishing up a little bit. That was said on the fly. No, no, it's fine. I mean, I think I would probably mostly agree with you, but I just think, you know, in terms of people who have the ability to be able to deploy that kind of, those kind of roles and, and put them offshore, I mean, these are people who have very complicated personal tax structures uh, and they will probably never... Well, that's true, yes. Yeah, they'll so. probably never experience... Um, so it will affect the people who who who, who will feel the, the, the burden the most, whether it's... Uh, the middle class or the or the because we do have a, a growing middle class and whatnot so you know it's um it's 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 an interesting thought to ponder but i think talking about kind of learning lessons at a younger age and learning the right lessons at a younger age mm. i think the final question i wanted to ask you jamil was at 23 years old when you were you know bright-eyed and ambitious i mean you're still very ambitious and bright-eyed i might add and bright-eyed absolutely <laughs> Uh, with all the fucking matcha that you're eating, you know, you're, <laughs> you're drinking. Um, but, um, you know, when you decided to embark on this journey, the 10 plus years now of which a massive congratulations is in order, I think many people are um, serenaded by the idea of entrepreneurship, uh, but unfortunately lack the stamina and the willpower to be able to see it through, to be able to go through the tough times and know that and have the uh, the faith in their own ability and the team around them that we're going to get through this. Yes. I think this is something that is extraordinarily admirable and needs to be uh, needs to be celebrated as far as I'm concerned. So congratulations on being able to run something for so long and to 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 make it the success it is today. But looking back, I'm sure you've made mistakes. I'm sure you've faced obstacles and maybe you've you know, uh, not dealt with them in the way of which that you feel as though that you should have uh, in hindsight. If you were to have a meeting right now with your 23-year-old self, what is the primary piece of advice that you would give him? When I began, and th- thank you for that, that's very, that's very kind praise. Um, when I began, I started, I did it all the wrong way. I, br- I brought a lot of tea that I thought was very interesting and, you know, tasted great. And then went about selling it. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs do that. Mm. They get a passion for something and they want to share that with everybody else, which is, which is admirable. And you set the whole thing up and then go about making the sales. Mm. And this is a crazy way of doing it. It's, high, it's much higher risk than it needs to be. I think what I would tell myself is sell it before you buy it. Yes. 
So go out into the marketplace, find the customers, find the exact demand, mm. see how, and of course, if you're doing something new, there won't be the demand for it, but you'll see the potential for the demand and agree a deal before you put down the, the majority of the money. So, you know, if you're, if you're developing a new product then, and the marketplace is a high street retailer, go to the high street retailer with the prototype, see if you can get a deal before you put it in place. I brought a pallet of tea in, packed it up and went out to you know, try to start telling all the hotels and restaurants and, and tea merchants how great this tea was, which is the wrong way around of doing it, in my yeah. opinion. So in a nutshell, I would say that the advice I would give myself is sell it before you buy it. Yeah, I'm a big believer in that model. Mm. Um, you know, whether you call it, you know, made to order or, or, or pre-selling or whatever it might be. I'm a, I'm a big, big fan of that model. I think it's a very sustainable way of yes. doing business as well. I mean, in some industries, yeah, I, you couldn't quite do that in this industry, although we're getting to that stage. Mm. But in the in things like leather goods and yes. and clothing and and shoes and so on, they are industries where you can take the order in advance, take the deposit in advance, so your cash flow risk is reduced, and then have the product made to order, mm. which will no doubt be much more valued by the consumer, and probably low waste although i'd be i'm shooting or, for or, or in fact actually so i recently interviewed a guy uh, not recently a few months ago now uh, who owns a company called son of a tailor mm-hmm. um it's i've a, heard of this company yeah amazing yes. amazing brand it's pretty much the only t-shirts i wear now really yeah 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 so it's essentially bespoke t-shirts yes, yeah. yes i know this i actually i considered buying some from them they're amazing i almost did but i think they, they couldn't do exactly what i was after i think or something no they're amazing they, 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 I very almost did. It's an excellent company. It's extraordinary. Yeah. Uh, and the, the founder is very impressive. Mm. Um, really nice guy. And, um, you know, they are essentially making clothing products with zero waste now. Excellent. Uh, it's unbelievable. Uh, just with, it's, it's one of the most beautiful uses of technology as far as I'm concerned, right? Um, it's not using technology for the sake of technological advancement. It's for the sake of benefiting the end product. Yes. Um, and I think, you know, the advice that you've just given, I think not only there are so many 23, 22, 21 year olds out there who are looking to create their own businesses. And I think having the the, the experience that you have, um, that kind of advice would really benefit them. Um, but once again, Jamil, I have to say a massive thank you for having this conversation with me. Uh, I think, My pleasure. I think, I think, thank you for having me on this uh your incredibly well-respected podcast. Oh, no, I don't know if it's that. I think but, I, uh, <laughs> I'm not, not sure I'm quite worthy of being honest at this stage. So, so no, thank you. no, no, not at all. Not at all. I mean, you know, for me, I just think, I, I, I think when, when people think of you within the industry, they think of the tea wizard. They think of the guy who knows everything about tea. And you do. You, you know everything about tea. You are probably one of the most knowledgeable people I have ever met about tea however you are also one of the most fascinating people that i've had the pleasure of talking to we've had lots of conversations personally and privately um and i just felt as though that it was important for people to to see that side of you um because i think many people know that you know a lot of shit about tea um but uh, i just have to thank you for having that conversation with me today it means a lot thank you for somewhat surprising me with the direction that the conversation went in. I, that's a lot of praise, Omar. Thank you so much. I return the compliment. I think you're, you're definitely one of the most interesting people that I've met and a real, a real polymath. Oh, thank you your, so your much. Your ability yeah. to talk to people of so many different disciplines as if you are an expert already in those disciplines <laughs> is, is remarkable. Shows a, a, a great agility of mind. I appreciate it, Jamil. Thank, well, thank, thank you. you again, mate. Thank you, my pleasure. And I will, I will just say before you, although you have said that I know everything about tea, one thing you do realize in life is that the more you know, the more you realize how little you know. <laughs> so, um, I, yes, I know some things, but there's so much more that I have no idea about. No, I think that's the sign of a very modest person. Uh, but what I can say realist. is that, <laughs> A realist, exactly. But, uh, but no, thank you again, Jamil. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you.